Welcome to this episode of Planting Seeds. I'm Keith Jones, the preaching minister of Calera Church of Christ, and I've prepared a short message from Scripture that's intended to be the planting of a seed that, if cultivated, will in time produce fruit in the lives of the listeners. Now, let's get started. Shine upon you and be gracious and give you peace. This episode begins a study of 1 Corinthians. If you have a Bible with you, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and follow along while I read beginning in verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we begin this study of 1 Corinthians, I think it's important to have some background information. The Corinth of Paul's time was a city that was only about 98 years old on his first visit. Corinth was a Greek city that had fiercely opposed Roman rule, and in 146 BC, Maximus destroyed the city, and it lay desolate for almost a hundred years. It was rebuilt by Julius Caesar in 44 BC and became the provincial capital of Achaia, or Greece. In this town, there were many pagan temples. The largest of these temples was the temple to Aphrodite. As a part of their cult ritual, prostitutes were involved. There was a temple of Poseidon, and there were several lesser temples, one to Apollo, one to Hermes, Venus, and Isis, and then a pantheon to all the gods. The city had a large population, maybe as many as 700,000 people. That would be about the size of Denver, Colorado. They were primarily Greek, with a large population of retired Roman soldiers and a population of Jews. In the first century, it had a large marketplace that was larger than any in Rome. It had a large amphitheater in it that seated over 14,000 people. And it held biennial Ithmus games that were second only in importance to the Olympic Games. Paul may have even had opportunity to attend these games. He certainly uses games like these to illustrate his teachings in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 9.24, he talks about athletes running a race to win a reward or a crown. Victors at the games originally received a crown of dried celery, but that was changed to a pine wreath during Roman times. Corinth had light industry and manufactured highly prized bronze, including polished mirrors. Uh, Paul makes a reference to being able to see our image dimly in a mirror in 1 Corinthians 13.12. By A.D. 50, Corinth was the most modern, most beautiful city in all Greece. But not everything was great in Corinth. With excessive luxury came excessive debauchery. It was a port city that catered to sailors and traveling salesmen. A Greek proverb even developed that not everyone can afford a trip to Corinth. And that wasn't talking about money. It was talking about the damage to your character or reputation after having been there. A second-century Greek writer said that when Corinthians were portrayed on stage, they were always drunk. And the term being Corinthianized became a Greek expression that meant to live with drunken, immoral debauchery. 
to this city that had been destroyed and rebuilt and now was bigger and better than ever is the city that Paul walked into about 51 or 52 AD. He got there after making a 50-mile trip from Athens to Corinth. When he arrived in Corinth, he ended up staying there for about 18 months and earned his living as a tent maker. He met Priscilla and Aquila, who had been forced from Rome in AD 49 when Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome. The historian Suetonius said that this was because the Jews were in a constant state of tumult at the instigation of one Christos, or Christ. It seems the only reason that Paul left Corinth when he did was because the Jews had united in an effort to have him imprisoned. They brought accusations to the proconsul Gallio, who was the brother of the philosopher Seneca, and saying that he was worshiping God contrary to the law. It was against Roman law to proselyte Roman citizens. But when it was determined that the accusers were only concerned with the possibility that he had broken Jewish law, he was released. However, a convert who was the president of the synagogue was beaten by the Jews. A few days later, Paul leaves for Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila and apparently Sosthenes. Then Paul leaves Ephesus and Apollos arrives where he meets Priscilla and Aquila. The disciples then send Apollos to Corinth. And after making a trip through Galatia, Paul returns to Ephesus and makes it his home base for about three years. All this information is in the book of Acts. It was during this time that Paul wrote as many as four letters to the Corinthians and may have made one quick trip, possibly a severe one, in addition to the two mentioned in Acts, based on what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. We have letters that we call 1 and 2 Corinthians, but those actually may be the second and fourth letters that Paul wrote. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 mentions a previous letter he had written them, and 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and then again in chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, mention a severe letter and its success. So Paul was very well connected with this church through visits and through letters. He knew what was going on there, and he knew what the problems were. And this seems to be the reason that Paul is writing them. In this letter, Paul does mention things that they are doing well, but primarily he seems to be concerned with their problems. The first four chapters deal with the divisions that they're experiencing. Chapter 5 deals with sexual immorality. Chapter 6 with lawsuits among believers. Chapter 7 deals with marriage. Chapters 8 and 9 with eating meat, especially that meat sacrificed to idols. Chapter 11 deals with authority and the use of head coverings. Chapter 11 also deals with what Paul calls the Lord's Supper. Chapters 12 through 14 deal with spiritual gifts. Chapter 15 with the resurrection from the dead. And chapter 16, he talks about an efficient way to collect money for those who are in need. Paul covers a lot of ground. It's a long letter, but it's one that's worthy of our attention. You may wonder why and why spend all this time setting the context of the letter. Well, certainly while some customs have changed from ancient Corinth to today, many of the attitudes and behaviors that were creating problems in the church are still very alive and well in American society. Issues that plagued the Corinthian church are still issues for us today. 
And as we look at Paul's solutions to these problems, we see the wisdom that he used and can learn how to apply that wisdom to our day and time. If we read through this letter without the proper context, we may struggle to understand, is Paul dictating a set of rituals, or is he demonstrating how a sincere heart and a proper attitude can find solutions in any conflict? Knowing the setting and the context of the writing will help us to determine the proper application for us. A willingness to submit to Paul's teaching makes us a part of something much larger than ourselves, that community of believers, and being able to do it in a way that doesn't create division or arguments and fights, but brings about unity, unity in purpose, unity in attitude, and unity in our witness for Christ. Paul is being used by God to make the Corinthians a better church. In reading his letter, God can use it to make us better churches locally and a better church universally. Paul's primary focus in this letter seems to be creating unity. So if we read it in a way that creates division, we may have missed the point. Reasonable people have continued to disagree about the proper application of some of the passages that we'll read over the next several episodes. But the reality is, even if we don't always understand Paul's words the same way, we can certainly embrace his attitude and agree that the most important thing is that the body of Christ be united. And we have to remember that unity is not uniformity. And Paul's goal here is not to make clones of one another. We've seen the results of abusive churches trying to coerce and manipulate people into acting a very particular way. And very often those ways aren't even biblical to begin with. We're all different people. We've been given different gifts and abilities, as this letter will point out. The goal is to learn how, with all of those differences, to work toward our common goal. That also does not excuse differences in doctrine, especially when it seems that Scripture is clear. When there are disagreements, we have to be willing to assume that we may have made a mistake, that we may have read it wrong, that we may have understood it wrong, and be willing to take a deep dive with our brothers and sisters to make sure that we have a common understanding. I think sometimes we're too quick to give up on hashing out doctrinal differences. We choose to agree to disagree when maybe God wants us to actually agree. But knowing how to apply Paul's wisdom in any given situation hopefully will come to bear as we look at this letter. There are times when differences are okay. There are times when differences create problems. As we look to sort through this, we need to be committed to only wanting to do what God wants us to do. If that requires us to make a change, we need to be willing to make it. These are the kinds of things that will help us grow toward unity. Thank you for listening. You can find more of these messages on our website, calirachurchofchrist.org, or subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Twitter.